Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, where each episode explores how to integrate timeless wisdom into everyday life. We engage in meaningful conversations with leading thinkers in philosophy, leadership, theology, and everything in between. We leave no stone unturned in search of wisdom. To learn more, visit us at perennialleader.com. Greetings, everyone. Joshua here. Thank you for listening. If you are curious about wisdom, this is the show for you. My guest today is Dr. Dilip Jesty, the author of Wiser, The Scientific Roots of Wisdom, Compassion, and What Makes Us Good. Dr. Jesty is a neuropsychiatrist who has spent more than 20 years studying aspects of wisdom and healthy aging. He is a professor of psychiatry and neuroscience and the director of the Center for Healthy Aging at UC San Diego. This episode discusses the definition of wisdom, cultivating compassion, emotional regulation, self-reflection and curiosity, why wisdom matters, and so much more. Speaking of wisdom, if you're interested in having short reflections on wisdom sent right to your inbox, go to perennialleader.com slash start here to sign up for our free emails. I hope you enjoy this conversation with the wise and gracious Dr. Dilip Jesty. Dr. Jesty, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you very much, Joshua, for inviting me. I'm delighted. I am incredibly grateful to connect with you to discuss wisdom. Big fan of your work and new book, Wiser, The Scientific Roots of Wisdom, Compassion, and What Makes Us Good. Great title and book. How does it feel to, to have your book out in the world? Thank you. It feels very good. This is my first book for general public. I have 13 books that I've written, but they're all for academicians and professionals. And it was really important at this stage of my career that I thought that I should reach out to the public at large and talk about wisdom, which I think is important both for individuals and for the society as a whole. Well, I'm glad that you did. And, and before we get into the conversation, I, I just want to highly encourage anyone listening to to pick up the book. If you're into audiobooks, it's a great on audio as well. So really enjoyed it. To begin, I was wondering if we could go back a few years and discuss you at age 14. You write that you were influenced by Freud in the interpretation of dreams. And I'd love to hear more about that. Sure. So... I was born and raised in India, and as a teenager, I was a bookworm. I used to read and read and read, and I found Freud's books for lay people absolutely fascinating. One book was Interpretation of Dreams. Another was Everyday Errors of Life, sort of slips of tongue. And what he does in the book is he takes some of these dreams or slips of tongue and then try to interpret them in the context of the person's behavior. So to me, it was like a murder mystery. Agatha history murder mystery starts with a murder. And then you present the various cues and finally you find who the murderer was. Here, of course, here it is more pleasant than that. 
And but how could Freud do that on a psychological side? And Freud was a neuropsychiatrist, so he believed that psychology rode on the back of physiology. So he believed that ultimately the basis was in the brain. And I was just fascinated how he could take the behaviors and interpret them in the context of not only psychology but also biology. And that made me decide that my I wanted to spend my life learning about brain and mind. And that's why I went into medical school in order to become a psychiatrist, which was considered quite strange even at that time. I mean, even more so at that time because there were so few psychiatrists. And person going into psychiatry, people often question that person's sanity. Yes. <laughs> I'm sure my friends did. Nonetheless, I was interested. And then so I completed the medical school. I went into psychiatry. And I was interested in research, again, understanding brain and mind. I did some research in India, but I realized that there was a limit to what I could do in India, naturally, because the country couldn't afford to spend resources on research of this kind. So I decided to move to USA because the mecca of research was and is National Institutes of Health. So my dream was to go to the NIH. So when I moved to the U.S., of course, I found out that actually I had to do residency again. And so I did residency at Cornell and then I moved to NIH. I did a research fellowship. I stayed on the staff there for several years. And I wanted to understand how the brain and mind work. Later, I got into geriatric psychiatry. So I'm a specialist in brain and mind disorders in older people. And once again, when I talked about going into geriatric psychiatry, the friends said that, be careful, this is kind of a career buster because mental illnesses like schizophrenia are incurable and aging is all gloom and doom. So it must be so depressing to go into geriatric psychiatry. What I found was the exact opposite. I found that as people got older, they seem to get happier, more contented, even people with schizophrenia. Their physical health declined, but their mental health often improved. Symptoms went down, smoking went down, alcohol, drug use went down. They become more adherent to medications and other treatment. And I wondered why this was happening. This is contrary to expectations. And so the one question was, is that this was something peculiar to schizophrenia or is it more common phenomenon? And around that time, I was appointed as director of an institute for research on aging at University of California, San Diego. And the previous directors of this institute had done research on diseases of aging, diseases like cancer, Alzheimer's disease, other dementia. I wanted to do something different. I thought that there are lots of people, lots of researchers are studying diseases of aging. I wanted to study the things that get better with aging. What is successful aging? What is healthy aging? What are the things that improve with aging? And the first thing that came to my mind was wisdom. Because growing up in India, like most Eastern cultures, people respected older people, older adults. And they thought that older adults are wiser. And I said, is that true? Is that true scientifically? Can we test that? Can we look at wisdom as a scientific construct and see if it 
really is associated with aging. And once again, as in other cases, my colleagues were surprised that I was even talking about doing research on wisdom. So these were distinguished colleagues in the field of aging and others. And they told me as a friend, they said that don't tell anybody you are doing research on wisdom because nobody will take you seriously. Your papers will not be published in journals. You won't get grant funding, etc. Because they said wisdom is a province of philosophers and priests, not scientists, not neuroscientists, because we don't think about those fuzzy constructs. You can't define wisdom. You can't measure wisdom. You don't know where it is located. So I said people had said the same thing about consciousness for centuries. They said consciousness is a psychological, philosophical construct, not neuroscientific construct. They said the same thing about stress, cognition, emotion, resilience. These things were dismissed for a long time as fuzzy, undefinable, non-scientific construct. And yet today, we know them very well as scientific construct, biological construct. And I propose that wisdom falls in the same category. But of course, it was now my responsibility to show that that was the case. But that is how I started working on wisdom and as it uh, related to aging. I'm curious, in those early years, did you have a, a clear vision or, or path of, of this research around wisdom or did that come as you as you kind of progressed? I clearly didn't have any idea about where I was heading and where I would end up. So I definitely did not think about wisdom at that time. Of course, part of that was also because I was an earlier stage of my career where I couldn't take chances with doing something that others would consider kind of esoteric. So my research was on schizophrenia, and I and I have been quite successful in getting grant funding, writing so I have 700 papers in peer-reviewed journals, and so on and so forth. But then I reached a stage of the career where I thought that I had nothing to lose, that I had acquired enough, and I had enough recognition in the field that people would take that, but then I had to prove that. It was my responsibility. But I felt that if I did that, people would take it seriously. How has your, if at all, through this really long search for wisdom, maybe changed? Is there anything that comes to mind that that really, really changed throughout this search in terms of your thoughts on wisdom? Sure. So when I started, I thought that wisdom was essentially a cultural construct, that it would vary from one culture to another. It would be different in India, China, US, Europe, and so on. And I was really surprised when I found that the definition of wisdom, as I found it in the modern Western literature, and that in some of the ancient scriptures, was surprisingly similar. And when I thought about it, actually, these components, I found that they make so much sense that that should be wisdom. And if the basic construct, clearly there are small changes here and there across cultures, across time, but the basic construct hasn't changed. And if it hasn't changed, it means that it must be biologically based. That's why its basic construct hasn't changed. Just like stress has been there throughout human history. Similarly, consciousness has been there throughout history, 
right? So then the question for me was, how do you examine it, its biology? And so, so what I find is this has become really exciting. Every time it, I learn something new, I answer one question, but then I raise four new questions and then I take answers to them. And it has been a great fun experience for me. Well, I love that. Before we get into the definition of wisdom, I was wondering if you could differentiate between intelligence and, and wisdom. Sure. Yeah, people often confuse intelligence and wisdom, and yet they're quite different. You do need some basic intelligence to be wise. There's no question about that. You need brain integrity to some extent to be wise. However, beyond that, IQ doesn't equate score on a wisdom scale. There are some very high IQ people, very intelligent, very smart people who are not wise. Some of them are antisocial. Some of the mass murderers, some of the terrorists, they're very smart people. What they lack is not IQ. What they lack is empathy, compassion, helping others. They're very selfish, narcissistic, and ignorant of others' perspectives. And they are not focused on helping other people. They're all for themselves. Also, there are intelligent people whose emotions fluctuate wildly. They are angry at one point, calm at the other, depressed at the third one. They're not happy people. Wisdom, what makes wisdom really unique among these different traits is that it is associated with happiness, well-being, satisfaction, contentedness, and help to the rest of the society. That is critical. Whereas IQ doesn't include any of those things. Thank you for that. When you think about the definition of wisdom, what's that succinct definition that you came up with? Sure. So wisdom is a personality trait like extroversion or introversion, neuroticism, resilience. These are our personality traits, like characteristic patterns of behavior in an individual. So wisdom is a personality trait, but it is complex in the sense it has several different components. The most important component is empathy and compassion, things that we do for other people than for ourselves. Unselfish behavior to help the rest of the society. So that is the most important component of wisdom. Second one is control over emotions. So think about a teenager. His emotions fluctuate from hour to hour, minute to minute. But the wise person would be pretty controlled, calm. I mean, clearly that wise person would sometimes feel happy, sometimes sad, but wouldn't go to the extremes of emotions. And usually has control over the emotions. The third is self-reflection, ability to look inwards, try to understand our own behavior. You know, when something goes wrong, the reflexive reaction is to blame something or somebody. Instead of that, you say, why did this thing go wrong? Maybe I did something that I should have done differently. What is it? Let me think about that. And then I will try to improve my behavior. So there is self-reflection. Then comes balance between accepting diversity of perspectives and decisiveness. Accepting diversity of perspectives is really important. And in these 
I mean, I feel in these days today, today uh, where there is so much polarization, that people have very strong beliefs, and there is nothing wrong with having strong beliefs of different kind, but there is kind of intolerance of opposition, in, intolerance of perspectives that don't agree with yours, and the tendency is to think that the people who think different from me must be either evil or dumb. Instead of saying that maybe they also have some rational thinking and there is some logic behind it, I may not agree with that, but they may have something. So accepting this diversity and also uncertainty, you know, that I have some strong beliefs, I may be wrong. Who knows? I mean, I'm open to correction, right? At the same time, I cannot sit on the fence all the time saying, well, this is right, that may be right, and I can't make a decision. That's not what a wise person has to be decisive when called for. You have to do that, right? And finally, one component, which is somewhat controversial still, is spirituality. Not everybody thinks that spirituality is a component of wisdom, but a number of people do. And spirituality is different from religiosity. So one can be an atheist and still be spiritual. Spirituality means constant connectedness to something or someone. You feel connected to, say, nature or consciousness or soul or God. It's fine. And because you feel constantly connected, you are never alone. You don't feel lonely. And you always have that connection. So these are the components of uh, wisdom as we define it. Do you see these components as kind of legs of a chair? You really need all of the components to a certain extent to have wisdom? I would think that all of them have to be present to some extent, but the degree to which each is present can vary. And so the single most important one is empathy and compassion. If the person doesn't have empathy or compassion, doesn't matter what else he or she has, that person is not a wise person. That's why antisocial personality can never be wise. Some of the psychopaths actually have strong emotional regulation. Uh, they have self-reflection accept diversity of perspectives. Obviously, they're not spiritual, but they do have other components. They are decisive. So, but they lack empathy and compassion, then they can't be wise. I don't think most people would be equally strong in all of these components, but that is okay. So long as you have adequate presence of each of these and then strong level of empathy and compassion. I was hoping we could spend a bit of time and you write Wisdom comes with age, but we can definitely become wiser faster. To start with that empathy and compassion, what comes to mind around, around cultivating that component? In general, studies show that as we get older, empathy and compassion tend to increase. They increase because of the experience. It is like in the beginning, the younger people may not be compassionate toward older people because they take so long to cross the street or they have difficulty reading something and they are complaining about that. And so you have to talk loudly and etc. And so they become a hassle. But as you get older and as you develop cataract, as you develop arthritis, then you realize that you are also slowing down. You have also difficulty reading. Your hearing is somewhat impaired. You appreciate that. It is like as a kid, very young kid, when I saw somebody slip on a banana peel, I laughed. But then some days later, I myself slept on a banana peel and that changed my perspective 
And when I saw somebody else do the same thing, fall down, I actually sympathize, empathize with that person. Experience helps us become more empathic and compassionate. And also we see other people helping us, strangers, for no reason. They would come out of some place and come and help. And there's no reason for them to help. There's no selfishness there. And that makes you feel that you should also try to do something for other people. Your research seems to align with a quote from the Buddha that says, if your compassion does not include yourself, it is incomplete. Why is self-compassion so important here? Self-compassion is really important. One example I gave is when we are flying, plane is about to take off and the security video comes on. And the video says that if the air pressure falls, masks will come down. Put on your own mask first before helping others. And one might say, how is that? That makes no sense. I have a child on one side, person with disability on the other side. I'm in the middle. I got to help them before I help myself. The reason is that it'll take only five seconds for me to put on my mask. And then I can have all the time in the world to help the two other people. And that's actually the principle that if I'm going to help others, I need to take care of myself. Because if I'm totally compassionate to others, if I give everything away, I will myself not survive. And if I don't survive, how can I help anybody? Right? So I have to take care of myself. And I have to be kind to myself just as I'm kind to others. So it should not be excessive self-compassion. Self-compassion should not exceed compassion toward others. Because then it becomes narcissism, where I'm only selfish and taking care of my own needs. No, you need to take care of other needs, other people's needs too. At the same time, you have to help yourself so that you'll help others more. That's the principle. Seems like many of these components and some of the important things in life are a balancing act of finding that middle way. Is that is that how you see it? You know, you really hit the nail on its head. I really think wisdom is balance because all of the, these different components I mentioned, too much of any of those components is also bad. If I'm too compassionate to others, I will give everything away and I won't survive. If I'm too self-compassionate, it will be too narcissistic and won't help others. If I'm too much self-reflection, I'm spending all the time thinking about myself, I won't do anything else. If I'm so emotionally regulated that I become a robot, I'm not a good person for other people to act. If I'm accepting of too many uncertainties or if I'm too quickly decisive. So any of these components in extreme is not useful. And of course, their absence is definitely not useful. So what we need is a balance. And the degree of balance would partly depend on the context and the situation. So there are some times when you need more emotional regulation, at other times you need a little less of that, and so on. That's really helpful. I appreciate you expounding on, on that. As we transition into, you mentioned emotional regulation with happiness. How does that come into play with wisdom? It is important to have emotional regulation because if somebody's emotions are fluctuating wildly, that person is not capable of making wise decisions and is not capable of being self-reflective and so on. At the same time, we don't want to be robots having complete control of emotion. It should be emotional regulation with positivity. 
And that does happen usually with age. That we tend to forget the negative instances, negative memories more than the positive ones. And that's called positivity effect of aging. And believe it or not, there is actually a biological explanation for that. So a part of the brain called amygdala that is associated with emotions. In younger people, that amygdala reacts to both positive and negative stimuli. Whereas in older age, it still responds strongly to positive stimuli, but not as much to negative ones. And that is actually, if you think about that, that is very useful. Because as we get older, there are physical disabilities that come into play. There are social stressors, economic stressors, bunch of other things, losses of our near and dear ones. We need to be strong. And so it is useful that we get over the negative things and remember the positive thing. So one way of saying that is just partly true is that for younger people, they are like the negative emotions are like Velcro. For older people, they are more like Teflon. The negative instances stick to a younger person's mind for a very long time. For an older person, they just pass them off and just remember the positive ones. That's really helpful. And I, I've never, never heard that before. That's definitely helpful. I appreciate that. One of the chapters I really enjoyed was the balancing decisiveness with the acceptance of, of uncertainty. Love to hear a bit more about that. You know, I mean, in life, most of the situations are not black and white. They're not clear cut. I mean, there are multiple options that are there. And one good example is in the sports. You know, any sports you take, you have to make a decision on the spot, right? And there are so many different options that are available. Whether you're a coach or leader of the team or even just regular player, you have to make those choices. So you have to consider uncertainties, but you have to be decisive. Otherwise, you can't succeed. To succeed, you have to have both, considering different options and then choosing one. And if something goes wrong, that is okay. I think one problem I find sometimes in people, they spend so much time in making a decision because they worry about the consequences. And the answer to that is that short-term consequences are often different from long-term consequences. So it is like in a regular season game, the coach makes a certain decision and the team loses. So that's a bad choice, right? But that loss then motivates the team to do very well. And then they go into playoffs and they, they with the championship. So what is a bad decision then turned out to be actually useful for the team because they became stronger. They learned from the mistake. So don't spend too, too much time in thinking about the long-term consequences because you don't know what they will be. They are determined by circumstances beyond your control. So you make the decision based on the information that is available to you at that point. Clearly, think rationally, take all into account and make a decision. But if that decision proves to be wrong later, that is okay. Don't blame yourself. Circumstances made it wrong. Okay, what do we learn from that? And then how do we move on? I think this that tendency to, what is called this, Monday morning quarterbacking uh, is that doesn't help. That second guessing oneself doesn't help too much. 
So, so, so that is what is needed, that you need to think about different options, but come to a decision when needed. Do you have the perception here around this that maybe there isn't a right or wrong decision, but each has its set of pros and cons? Often it depends on the context. Same decisions could be right in some circumstances and wrong in other circumstances. And in life that happens, I mean, sports, I give you an example. This can happen, of course, in wars or battles, right? I mean, sometimes you have to retreat in order to succeed. So so that's something worth remembering, that the making the right decision, try to think about the longer-term consequences to the extent that you can. So don't think about the immediate gratification. Think about often the example that is given is the marshmallow test in the children. So, you know, there's a marshmallow and they were told that if they didn't eat it for 10 minutes, they would get two marshmallows. And then the observer left. And many kids, of course, they just couldn't wait for that. So they ate it. But some actually held on. They waited. And then they got two. So, so that's the important part about not going what Freud called reality principle versus pleasure principle. Pleasure principle is immediate gratification. And that often doesn't help with the longer term outcome. And how does that connect with the component of self-reflection and curiosity? Was was Socrates onto something with the wisdom begins in wonder? Yeah, there's no question about that openness to new experience is important. Curiosity is important because we learn from that. If we just chose the safest way and kept on doing the same thing, we won't learn much. And that actually will make it, make us weaker because life changes. Even if we don't change, life will change. So we will have to face different circumstances. And we can better prepare ourselves for that by learning new things, experimenting with different circumstances. Again, everything has to be done in balance. So we don't want to take unnecessary risk. But necessary risk, absolutely. So, so we can't stay too secure and too stable but also not take unnecessary risks, depend, and that depends on the individual person, all our strengths and limitations, what we are and are not capable of doing. How would you suggest that we do an assessment on ourselves to determine, are we, do we have the right level of openness? So if you're talking about wisdom as a whole, assessment of wisdom, actually we developed a scale called San Diego Wisdom Scale. And in our book, we... Uh, have described that. So it has 28 items, four items for each of the components. And so it's a personality scale, right? So like any personality scale, there are statements. For example, one statement says that I cannot make decisions when I'm upset. Okay. That means when I'm upset, that means I'm so emotional. When I'm so distraught, I can't think logically. That means I don't have control over my emotions, right? So that's one example. Another is I like to think about the consequences of my actions. So that is self-reflection. So there are some items that are positively worded, some negatively worded, and you have to say whether you strongly disagree, disagree, neutral, agree, strongly agree with the statement. And on that basis, you get a score for each of the items. 
as well as the total score. And then you will get an understanding of where you fall in terms of the general population. So it is not exactly like IQ, but it is as good a personality scale that you can have. And so you can test yourself on that. And the one thing I want to stress is that you can change. Wisdom is modifiable. You can increase it. And so the reason for taking the scale would not be merely to you know, have one more test done, but find out what are your strengths and what are your limitations. But that's a part of self-reflection, right? Because then you can say, okay, I'm strong in these areas. I'm weak in these areas. And that's where I need to do better. I love it, Dr. Jesty. You write about a study between elders and kind of average age adults of reading a challenging text with difficult vocabulary and the elders taking a bit longer, but at the end of it, comprehending it, you know, much more. Could you elaborate a bit on that? So, so this came from the idea that older old age is all gloom and doom. So when I went to medical school, I was taught that the only thing that happens to brain is that it shrinks with age. It loses neurons, synapses, and all our cognitive abilities go down. We can't learn new things. We can't remember anything. That's not quite true. Surely we forget something. However, our ability to think rationally, taking into account complex perspectives, stays pretty good until much later in life. So even when we forget names and faces, we still have that capability of making complex choices because we can weigh different perspectives. And that's something, that is because it has come with experience. Younger people don't do too well because they haven't had the experience. So they don't have different perspectives. So the idea that just because somebody is 70 years old, that person will do worse than a 20-year-old is not true. The 70-year-old may do better than the younger one. Again, depends on the type of test we are using. Right. I mean, if you are looking at memory, clearly the younger one will do better. But for this complex reasoning perspective, so the things we have learned from early life and things that accumulate, older people do quite well. Vocabulary, for example, stays pretty good. If I learned biking when I was five, six years old, I can still bike, for example. So there are things that we retain. And there's a separate term for that. These are called crystallized abilities, which stay good until much later in life. I was really fascinated by that and, and had an appreciation for kind of the humility of, of knowing when to slow down, when to think a little bit deeper about a particular issue. Yeah, that's what I think about serenity prayer. That's really serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. I love that. My mom would want me to ask you about the grandmother hypothesis. <laughs> yeah, no, this is really a very important thing because it has been, this is research that has been published in the top journals like Nature and Science. So it is not some feel-good TV science. What the grandmother hypothesis states is that when grandmother helps her adult daughter raise children, okay, this adult daughter lives longer, 
is happier and produces more children than her mom did because she has more time. If she spent all her time in raising children, you know, she won't have any time for her own work or doing something or having more children because she can barely manage the one or two kids that she has. And this has been shown in dolphins, whales, humans, including the ancient tribes of humans as in the modern societies. And this actually has evolutionary significance for human aging. Because if you think about Darwin's hypothesis of survival of the fittest, what did Darwin say? He said that vertebrates don't leave after they lose their fertility because they cannot reproduce. And if you cannot reproduce, you're not contributing to the species survival because old animals are going to die, right? And they need to be replaced by young ones. So if you can't produce new ones, you are no good for the species and you die. And that's what happens to most of the vertebrates in the wild, not to humans. Today, humans, we have menopause in women around age 45 or 50, okay? Men also has something similar called andropause. The androgen levels go down. So after 45, 50, most people cannot reproduce, right? And so according to Darwin, people should die at that age or soon after that. The average lifespan today is 80 in the US. In just a couple, few decades, it'll be 90. So if somebody lives to age 90, they have spent half of their lifetime without producing children. And on top of that, their physical health is declining, right? Why do they leave? I and mean, why does it, the nature won't want those people to live unless something improves with aging and that something helps species survival. So if the older people who cannot procreate themselves, but if they help the younger generations be more fertile, be happier, be healthier, and live longer, older people are contributing to the species' survival. And really, so that has enormous significance that older people are needed for survival and flourishing of younger generations. And I, th- I feel very strongly about this as a geriatric psychiatrist. There is so much ageism in the society. We talk about silver tsunami because the number of older people is increasing. And we say this is a burden on the society. Older people cost so much for their health care. And the more money we spend on older people, we have less money to spend on children's education. That's so wrong. That's so wrong. And not because it is unethical, immoral, or out of sympathy for older people. No. It is because we need older people for helping younger people. The species won't survive without that. I mean, think about that. Another way of thinking about this is humans take the longest time for the brain development. Okay. So our brain starts, you know, how long does it keep on growing, developing? Till about 20s. So so not just during adolescence, but even after that for a few more years. So our brain is fully developed by, say, around 25. And yet, we can produce children at a much younger age. We can produce children at the age of 14, 15, puberty, right? So we can produce children, but we don't have fully developed brain. How can we take care of children when we don't have fully developed brain for taking care of ourselves? 
we need grandparents and so that's something society should remember so i say that there is no silver tsunami it's a golden wave of wiser healthier people who are essential for the survival of the species and flourishing of the younger generation such an important point it's not uncommon for our political leaders and certain industries to have individuals that are in their 70s but not necessarily in the corporate world and in other industries why do you think that is i think it is unfortunate that we have this ageism aging bias i think in the beginning it came up out of the fear that younger people won't have jobs if older people took the jobs and what is wrong with that concept is that the jobs that older people do are different from those that the younger people do we need both younger and older people obviously i mean in a way what happening in the silicon valley it is the younger ones who are developing this technological innovations typically they are in their 20s you know when they develop google and um, facebook and uh, you know all of those things that, that that's wonderful because there is a lot of creativity innovation thinking outside the box energy ability to experiment with new things that comes with young age right but the smart ones they hire older people as their cfos and communication directors and managing the staff because they know that old age comes with experience which is necessary for flourishing of them i mean if you also see sometimes this some of these um, sports phenoms who are outstanding at a very young age they do a great job but then in later life they just disappear because they really didn't have the older people to help them so i think it's a mistake for industries to have a compulsory retirement age i mean i know that fortunately the government scrap the retirement age but in many private businesses people are forced to retire at 60 or 65 and that is so wrong because we see people in their 80s and 90s we have senators we have congress presidential candidates presidents who have been uh, in the late 70s all over the world there are leaders who are old and who are doing well so again that doesn't mean that every old person is wise and that's not the point but the problem with ageism is we use that age to put all the people in one category as disabled people that's where the problem is any thoughts in the local community of how to leverage that that wisdom yeah i think what is needed is more intergenerational activities that we need to have activities where older and younger people work together because they have complementary strengths so and this is type of research we also are doing here at uc san diego what we had done is we took some engineering stones and took them to some of these retirement communities and they formed a team so there would be five six older people and two three engineering stones they would work together for a year you know i mean just one hour a week so on and their goal was to develop some new technology that was helpful for older people so the older people talked about what they their unmet needs are and then they worked together with these engineering students to develop something but they were co-inventors and so for the younger people had a lot of technological knowledge their energy enthusiasm etc 
Older people have this emotional regulation, self-reflection, empathy, compassion, all of those things. And the teams work fabulously well. It was really a pleasure to see their products. We felt so proud of them. It couldn't have occurred if we had only one of the two groups involved. It was essential that both groups were involved. And there is research that has shown that this kind of intergenerational activities are useful, not just psychologically, but biologically. The biomarkers get better in both these generations because of these activities. Wow, that's beautiful. Yeah, I love it. In the future of wisdom, you write for the first time in decades that the average lifespan is is declining. And I, I would love to hear you speak a bit about the loneliness and, and other causes of that. Sure. So we all know that COVID pandemic was terrible. It killed half a million, more than half a million Americans. And But what people don't realize is that we had behavioral pandemics going on for two decades before that. That's the pandemic of loneliness, suicides, opioid use. Loneliness has doubled in this period. Suicides increased by 33%. Opioid-related deaths increased six-fold in the last 20 years. According to the U.S. government, Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, 160,000 Americans have died every year from loneliness-related conditions. Wow, 160,000 per year. That is more than the number of deaths due to lung cancer uh, or stroke. And yet we don't pay attention to that because it is called a, it is a silent pandemic. So we don't really, it's not like, right, COVID. But so this is a behavioral pandemic. So there is something happening. I think part of the reason is globalization and part of the reason is increase in technology at a very rapid pace. Our brain doesn't know how to handle it. The things are changing so fast, which is good. I mean, globalization is good. Technology development is good. But they also have an adverse impact on the societal functioning. Our brain was not developed to handle these changes so rapidly. And that's why we are reacting with loneliness, suicides, drug abuse, and increased mortality. So we need a behavioral vaccine. And our research shows, or suggests at least, that wisdom may be that vaccine because we find very consistent opposition of loneliness and wisdom. People who score high on wisdom are not lonely and vice versa. We have seen this in five different studies, including more than 10,000 people. A longitudinal study shows that, and even in actually looking at EEG, and microbiome, we find that they go in opposite direction. So I really think that what we need to do to the societal malaise and this behavioral pandemic of loneliness, suicides, opioid use, we need to teach people, train people at all levels in empathy, compassion, self-reflection, emotional regulation. We need that for our societies survival, let alone flourishing. I really appreciate you sharing that message. When you think about going from individual to societal wisdom, if you were in charge for a period of time, what comes to mind as some steps to to take? There is 
no doubt, actually, and this is all based on research, empirical research, that the level of stress has has been going up continuously. You know, they said suicides, opioid use, that, that those are going up. And we need to change that. And the way we can change will be through education. Education at all levels, starting from kindergarten to undergraduate, to professional schools. You know, the number of suicides in medical students has been going up. Suicides have been especially increasing in teenagers and people in the 20s. Not so much in older people. But in the last 30 years, suicides have gone up so much more in younger people. Because they are the ones who are facing stress. Although they are so good at technology, there is kind of, they are getting burdened by this information overload. And they don't know how to handle it. So what so what we teach right now, we focus on hard skills, hard skills like coding and computer language, and similarly in medicine, how to be the best diagnostician and prescriber. We should also teach people increasing their empathy and compassion, including self-compassion. How do we social relationships, social engagement, social support? These are essential for survival and thriving. And the only way we can do that is by educating people and rewarding people for that. Let us not reward people strictly because they develop a code that resulted in the companies making a billion dollars. I mean, that's great. But we should also reward people who brought more empathy, compassion, and happiness to the work group. And that's really important that needs to happen. That is so helpful, Dr. Jesty, and I'm absolutely grateful for your time. This has been wonderful, and I want to respect your time. So I just have a few kind of final wrap-up questions, if I if I could. On the topic of of wisdom and your research, what comes to mind that you're still really curious about? Yeah, there is still so much to be learned about wisdom. So I talked about its localization in some parts of the brain. But again, science, that science is in its infancy. We need to know more about that. And one of the reasons we need to know more about that is because we will be able to improve levels of empathy, compassion, emotional regulation biologically to some extent, at least, and at least in some people. And that is important. Just as we treat depression with antidepressants, there is now technique of what is called brain stimulation. You can stimulate specific areas of the brain and that will improve depression. Similarly, there should be specific areas of the brain that can improve compassion in people who are antisocial, for example, improve emotional regulation in people who are very impulsive, right? So so that's one area I see that uh, growth of neuroscience. Another is technology. So I'm a co-director of IBM UCSD Center on artificial intelligence for healthy living. And so we to work on artificial intelligence, AI. But I think the artificial intelligence today is very intelligent, obviously, very smart. But just as in humans, intelligence is not the final solution. It is wisdom. So we need to have future robots who will, again, the robots will always be robots. They won't have their own consciousness, emotions, etc. However, the future robot should help their human masters become more compassionate, to have more regulation of their emotions, to be more self-reflective, 
And if we teach our machines how to do that, they can do it. Again, this is not possible today, but it will be possible tomorrow. And what it needs is collaboration between these computer scientists, engineers, psychiatrists, psychologists, ethicists, philosophers. That's the kind of work that is needed for our future of wisdom. That's really interesting. For someone listening today looking for a really small or tiny step towards being wiser, is there anything that comes to mind? I mean, I would say that the first thing, to test your wisdom again, as I said, and this is not promoting my own test, but I think it's good to get some idea about where you are in terms of each of these components so you can think about it. And then there are steps for increasing each of these that we have given in our book, how to increase self-reflection, how to increase empathy, compassion, emotional regulation, accepting uncertainties, decisiveness, and so on. And there is actually empirical research that has been published, the randomized control trials on these. And but what we talk about in the book is how do you translate that into practical wisdom? What can you do on a day-to-day basis? And the bottom line is we need to change our daily behavior. You know, it is just like we go to physical uh, exercise place and we learn some new exercises. It doesn't matter what we learn. It's a question of what we practice every day, right? So practical wisdom means every action or almost every major action that we take is based on empathy, compassion, self-reflection, emotional regulation, other components of wisdom. And that can happen. It's not rocket science. It's not too hard to do. But we have to motivate ourselves and practice it. And I think everybody is capable of being wiser. That's great. Lastly, Dr. Jesty, we are big readers here at In Search of Wisdom. After everyone reads your book, Wiser, I was wondering if there was any must-reads that you might like to share. I mean, I, I personally am very fond of biographies of people. And you know, I grew up, and because they became kind of role models, I learned from them, even though I know the people. And the people... It's a question that has been surveyed often that who do you consider the really wise people across the world? And the usual nominees, as one can anticipate, are Mother Teresa, Martin Luther King, uh, Mahatma Gandhi. But sometimes the wisest people are actually the grandma who may not have gone to college. She's the wisest person in the family. Everybody knows that and they go to her to solve a dispute. And so we have wise people all around us and we can talk to them some of them have written their autobiographies or other people have written their biographies but these grandmas talk to them and learn from them how they who they are i love that this has been a great conversation where can people go to learn more about your work so for the book wiser this wiserthebook.com and for my own work they can Look at djste at ucsd.edu. And there's also dilipvjste.com. All right, great. And we'll link all of that in the show notes to include the assessment. Dr. Dilip Jesty, I thank you for your time today. This has really been a pleasure. Thank you, Joshua. It's a pleasure to have been on your podcast. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you gained a bit of wisdom. 
You can check out the show notes at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you enjoyed the show and would like to support, please subscribe, share with a friend, and leave a review. It's a small thing that has a big impact. Until next time, be wise and be well.